0: Coming up with the idea for the X-Files movie, Frank Spotnitz and I uh, were sitting in Hawaii thinking about what we needed to do to make the idea bigger than the series, a, a concept that could be worthy of a movie and uh, explain some things that the series didn't or hadn't. And so we needed this this big idea that needed to start in an extreme place and end in an extreme place. And uh, we had done some research uh, and found out that the globe had been covered in, in ice not that long ago in, in historical terms, uh, as far down as Texas. So we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to, uh, to take some place we wanted to shoot, which is the desert, and uh, make it a completely different landscape prehistorically. And uh, also, it was an idea that encompassed the uh, bigger idea here, which is that alien life has been here uh, prehistorically and that uh, it may have gone underground and this is the, uh, the, really the reason for that uh, big action sequence with the, uh, the caveman and uh, the alien dinosaur, if you will, that really shapes the, uh, the first sequence. You write these uh, cavemen, uh, these, these primitives, these men of a, a sort of unknown time. And uh, while they've been recreated by scientists and, uh, I guess, anthropologists, the, the look of them, it, it didn't quite look right when we first started making up the, uh, the actual actors, the stuntmen, who play the, the two primitives, which is what we call them. And so it went through several different stages. Uh, they looked kind of cartoonish at first, and then with the, with the prosthetics, and they looked uh, too ape-like. And because this isn't uh, that long ago in historical terms, Uh, they needed to look more like modern man. Yet, when you made them more modern, it didn't seem right either. So we sort of, I think, walked a a thin line trying to make it believable and yet uh, not make them look uh, too cartoony.
1: This particular fight sequence, from my point of view as a director, was challenging because I've got two people in heavy wardrobe and makeup and I need a very physical, very violent fight in a, basically a black arena. And the alien, the gentleman inside the alien suit, is completely blind with, uh, you know, sharp talons as, uh, at the end of his fingers, so I've got to protect the caveman from his claws, and the caveman has got to pretend to be stabbing somebody that he can't really stab with his sword. And, uh, you know, there's no guns and, and uh, none of the usual things we see in a, in a fight in a movie, so how do I make it? Uh, as real and as scary as I possibly can, well, uh, once I saw the creature walk in, realized that he was blind, I had to adjust the entire approach to filming because I now needed to be very short flash cuts so that I can create the illusion that the alien is quite dangerous and lethal and uh, all the while having this UCLA linebacker, Craig Davis and Caracol Quinn, you know, take all the blows and slam up against the real plaster and make it as visceral and dynamic and as worthy of the opening of a, of a movie as I possibly could. So, but none of that was really understood until I saw Tommy Woodruff walk on stage, you know, sort of like a blind man down a sidewalk and thought, okay, I'm going to have to be very abstract in my approach. And uh, I think we shot a little extra film just to have enough cuts to make it pulse along nicely and um, so it seemed to be there was pitfalls at every turn of how it couldn't go well yet due to Tommy's practice as, a, as an alien back to the Alien movies and Pumpkinhead and, and Carrick's uh, dexterity and, and, and uh, Craig Davis's dexterity just being athletic um, you know, I think we were able to pull off somewhat of a um, a worthy fight sequence between these two disparate characters. Now we leap forward to present day, 10,000 years forward. And the shovel and the wardrobe helps us identify where we are. And then we've got these three very ordinary little boys who are out playing around in their backyard, like every other kid who grew up digging holes and looking for stuff. And boy, don't they find the ultimate buried treasure and it's the it's the the accents and the sort of the ease at which these guys are going through the dialogue that that is sort of the fun of the scene. And now we've gone from you know prehistoric times into you know everyday life somewhere in the south. The human skull. This is this no would be the dream of, of every no 10-year-old what, what, boy is to mine. jump into a huge cave and find a skull and, and sort of weird, it's translucent. Of course, now it all goes wrong. New mystery for the boys. What the this is uh, Lucas Black, who uh, we first saw in uh, Sling Blade, and who's just as a very sort of. Natural, easygoing pace about his delivery, and, and uh, we thought would bring um, some the audience closer into the storytelling because it sounds like he's just you know the everyday boy from the next door uh, and the other boys I think were all found in you know Virginia and South Carolina and whatnot. So we we were looking for as natural delivery as we could find, and now the camera comes up out of the ground and we realize that we're in uh, suburban Texas. Um, as a legend identifies, uh, with Dallas there in the background. And yet there's another time cut in the middle of the shot, still rolling, same shot, and uh, we bring in the fire department. And um, the trick is marrying the two shots together, you know, and there's two halves of one shot shot hours apart and taking out the, the seams of the house's blurring as you overlay the two shots together. And now we're, you know, urgently trying to figure out what's happened to this little boy. We send the firemen down in the cave. The cave has proven to be um, a scary, dangerous place for anybody who goes down in there. And this will be the third part of our mystery where we're going to infect these firemen. And now by not showing them and the dangling ropes and the ropes eventually go still and there's no response on the radio, um, we're worried that the firemen are going to uh, suffer the same fate as the boy in the the Anathol leap forward again in time uh, to the chopper arriving which is obviously help that's been called by the fire department and uh... but they get more than they are bargained for they they've asked for just some some help from uh... from the, uh, the city of dallas and who shows up as you know, these hazmat suits hazmat suited men in white uh... with this bubble litter and then some gentleman who suggest by scaring everybody away by asking for everybody to move back there's a, there's a larger problem that than, than we're being told that he knows something that we don't know uh, the sheriff still is in over his head a little bit he's informing uh, mr braunschweig here you know what he saw and what he found and braunschweig who knows more than we do at this point realizes that we're in more trouble and more danger than we can ever imagine here being preoccupied by the tie-in of what he's seen the oil in the boy's eyes and knowing what he knows about the aliens and the entire conspiracy he's up against you know this small town fireman. um hey, we're in for a world of trouble and then sort of playing on into that bigger mystery is this uh, circus of trucks pulling in and this was a very tricky sequence to film because we had not enough time to do it and uh when you've got six or seven or eight semi 40-footers rolling in at 35 miles an hour crisscrossing each other's paths well there's a lot of opportunity for trouble and for accident wrecks and um, I didn't have enough time to shoot it carefully so we sort of uh, documentary styled it and it was actually very little good film in there because the camera guys are so busy whipping around getting different pieces of film that there was very few th- shots that lasted more than two, two and a half seconds, so that was a, it was a challenge just to mine through all the footage and find what is a very, very carefully selected
0: few shots of, of living those trucks in. Our mantra on the TV series has always been, it's only as scary as it is believable, and it's only believable if it feels real, which I think is probably what science fiction should always attempt to do. And so we needed to, uh, because we needed to recreate Dallas, we went and scouted in Dallas and uh, in Texas and found out that it would be prohibitively expensive and that we uh, needed to shoot this bomb sequence in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, the Los Angeles skyline, which is very recognizable, needed to be disguised, and so camera angles needed to be chosen, appropriate camera angles. We needed to find the right rooftop looking over at the uh, right building, Uh, There were so many different uh, things we needed, and luckily we found, I think, the right combination. I think Rob did a great job of disguising some of the more prominent aspects of the LA skyline. And then Matt Beck came in, our visual effects producer, and uh, helped to take away a little bit of the background of Los Angeles. So when you see that helicopter fly past, you're actually seeing for a moment there a bit of a recreation of what uh, we tried to make look uh, like Dallas instead of Los Angeles. The, the character of Scully is introduced in uh, of the following shot. We see her tiny on the rooftop and then we see her walking down onto this building where she's talking on the telephone to Mulder. Uh, fans of the TV series know that they communicate by cell phone a lot. I don't think I could have done a TV show like this pre-cell phones. And this is the introduction to the characters. You get a chance to hear Scully talking very scientifically. She's very rational. She's very logical. And Then you get a chance to see her run into Mulder. This is the introduction of not just one character but two and also them as a pair. For a movie which where we would have a uh, a larger audience, maybe even a new audience. We were hoping to build on our television audience. We needed to understand very quickly who these characters were, what they believed in, what their relationship was to one another, the playfulness before all the uh, the action set in. This was a trick. Most filmmakers don't have to do something like this. They don't have to uh, um, reestablish characters for uh, both an old audience and a new audience and so that was the trick throughout the beginning of the movie which was not to bore the regular audience and to uh... uh keep uh, the uh, the new audience entertained I created two characters who are sort of opposite of their gender stereotypes uh, Scully being the reasonable character the one who is uh, scientific who needs things explained to her much like male characters usually are and Mulder being the more intuitive character the one who feels and uh... is much more like a a female character is usually cast. I think that we needed to uh, reestablish this, uh, to have the audience understand this uh, as quickly as possible so that we might uh, um, uh, take them through the rest of the story understanding exactly who uh, they were watching. The characters of Mulder and Scully, as fans of the show know, have not just a respect for one another and an affection and a protectiveness but uh, they have a deep love for one another. Where this goes in the movie is a place that it has never gone before in the television series and it ends up in a pivotal scene in Muller's hallway. That needed to be set up here in the beginning of the picture. We needed to make sure that we didn't go too far ultimately with these characters to take the relationship to too far a place because we needed to come back for the, the next year of the TV series which was year six and uh, so there again, filmmakers usually don't have to think conservatively, but we needed to make sure that the relationship was understood, intact, went somewhere new, uh, yet uh, didn't go so far as to be uh, irreparable. The vending room sequence is
1: a very uh, unusual way to begin a mystery because it begins quietly and unsuspiciously. And then, you know, David's got this funny moment with the bending machine that eats his quarter, which we've all been through. But, uh, you know, in, with Mulder's impenetrable sense of wonder, he's always looking around the corner for something not right. And and he finds something that, that uh, he never thought he would or certainly hoped he wouldn't find, which is, boom, you know, the bomb. And it's it's these moments that i've played with david a thousand times before in various episodes in vancouver where uh his sort of just poking around um with not much to do results in you know a discovery of of grand proportions he doesn't even know how big this one this one's going to be but this discovery is going to lead him on the greatest adventure of his of his career And of course, meanwhile, Skelly's outside thinking he's just goofing off because of the rooftop thing with the doorknob. Um, But you know, just psychologically, the audience is thinking, "What? You know, there's a bomb in a vending machine in a building that was not cleared uh, of its personnel. So, are we suggesting that whoever planted this bomb intended to to not only..." detonate the building but everybody inside of it full of people that's that's the most heinous crime I can imagine and I was actually resistant to the idea early on in the script process um, because I've got relatives in Oklahoma but um, you know the fact that Mulder shows up and does clear the building I think is the difference of course between you know the unfortunate event in Oklahoma and and uh, you know what we're saying here but it is a horrible horrible crime and um, you know it's what is the catalyst to set Mulder and Scully in action to, to solve this crime and figure out what's going on Now, in, uh, from a director's point of view, you know, on the X-Files, everything is trying to be made as authentic as possible and, and research, research, research. Well, I wanted this bomb to be, you know, without instructing people how to make a bomb, a real bomb. And so we had uh, the BLA Bomb Squad come in and basically give us the visuals what it should look like. And uh, on the first appearance, it's not very interesting. Nowhere near what, you know, movie bombs look like. But... Uh, we came to a common ground of reality where this is a bomb that's got accelerants and detonators and explosives so that when you look at it it's slightly underwhelming it doesn't have all the sizzle and eye candy that a lot of bombs and movies do because the bombs and movies usually are uh, exaggerated and, and phony baloney and therefore not really bombs um, and, and and this one i wanted to have more of an authentic touch to so it's a little simpler stacks of c4 and some computer cable here and there and something in those um, gallon jugs down below. Um, and I know when we first put the bomb in the vending machine, that they taped up the, the uh, tubs down below, and the tape was so well done that it actually just looked like, oddly enough, the inside of a vending machine. Although we didn't see any cans, we couldn't tell that it was, in fact, a bomb. So I walked up and sort of yanked around on the red tape to, to break it up a little bit and make it look like it was sort of hand-wrapped and and um, quickly so uh, but uh, it was just to give the audience the feeling that this was not a sensationalized piece of equipment that it was it had something more authentic about it and just trying to make it as real as possible it now begins the countdown of the explosion this is a sequence that we've seen in movies before and i wanted to find a way to do it differently through the prism of the x-files through the minds of the characters, and that's a rule we try to stick to, and that is telling stories through point of view. So I thought, well, okay, fine. Point of view is first-person narrative. How do I tell this story through the minds of Mulder and Scully? And that is by following them into the car and staying with them in the car through the explosion, and only using third-person or objective shots of the building to show the degree of damage or the size of the explosion. But nothing else, nothing gratuitous, not a lot of panic shots of the crowd, but Mulder and Scully's perception and experience of this explosion. So I called Heather, the this, this Scully stunt double, and asked her if she'd be willing to get in the car, unseat belted, and ride out basically a crash caused by the explosion of the building. She said she would. And that sent into motion the storyboard and this entire approach of telling the story through an X-Files storytelling fashion. And then, you know, they barely get into the car, they don't buckle their seat belts, and now we're into the 14-camera building explosion. building explosion was done in two halves. The first half was um, the building exploding, uh, first floor and whatnot, angles of cars. Um, uh, Michaud's car, who was the FBI agent, was blown up, um, being concussed and kicked off the ground. And then the other half, after the building was blown up, was the uh, Mulder Scully car crashing into the parked car. Of which there was probably seven or eight cameras used for that sequence. Then all that being done, another small bit of filming with Mulder and Scully getting out of the car and walking up and looking at the exploded building with a green screen behind them. A motion control shot rotating around them with the face of the uh, Unical building being blown off, which was in fact a 45-foot miniature shot down in Playa del Rey with uh, you know miniature pieces of paper and flames and smoke added in in layers uh, then added composited into the background of that of that uh, shot over the back of david and gillian in light of waco and ruby ridge there's a heightened need at the attorney general's office to place responsibility as early as possible for the
0: the x-files was built on the idea that the government is withholding information, uh, keeping secret uh, certain facts and knowledge about the existence of extraterrestrials or not. Uh, This was the thing that I think stated very clearly in the pilot episode and has become a kind of spine for the uh, for the rest of the series. The FBI has come out of this looking actually pretty good. Uh, They look like a tool of a shadow government or of a uh, or of government operatives who are behaving in very selfish ways using the government to their own purposes to protect this conspiracy to to keep this conspiracy of silence in the series this plays in uh, what we call mythology episodes uh, about five or six episodes a year that investigate with agent Mueller and scully the the conspiracy and uh, the main people in it including the cigarette smoking man and uh, um, some other people uh, cry who doesn't appear in the movie, uh, who are uh, doing everything they can to keep these these secrets. So the the movie then is the big mythology episode. It is the one that deals with the government and the government's uh, unraveling, if you will, uh, the, the piercing of the veil of secrecy that they've been keeping for so long. And it's done through a giant investigation of Agent Muller and Scully for their behavior. Muller and Scully then have to go out as renegade agents to uh, overturn the information that is being um, uh, sort of framed against them and in doing so they uh, uncover the mythology that for five years running has been uh, uh they sort of engine for the x-files major Miller, you and i both know that if it looks bad it's bad for the fbi has to be assigned the X-Files is one of the most collaborative endeavors one could ever possibly hope to be involved in, and I mean that in a good way. It's There's a tremendous esprit de corps. There are so many people involved in the TV series, as there were involved in the movie, who uh, want the work to be good above all else so you get all these talented people working together for a common goal it's important to any enterprise but it's particularly important to a movie and for a television series it's important because you do it for years at a time A movie you come and you make the movie and you all part ways uh, hopefully as friends you may work again sometime but uh, it's provisional on a tv series it's not so you need to find a team which becomes your family and you live with them day in and day out On the movie, uh, luckily, I had uh, Rob Bowman directing, who was a part of that family, that television family, and he and I had developed a rapport, a shorthand. I help him in ways, he helps me in ways. It's immeasurable, but when you go forward and you have a director who values you as not just the writer, but as the producer, who is able to turn and listen to what you're saying and take that information, and you may disagree with it and can say so, You've got a situation where you've got two heads rather than one. You've got a cooperative and a team process. This is to take nothing away from the director. You know, a director is king on a movie, and he needs to be so. For the sake of the crew, for the sake of the actors, he cannot be second-guessed. He cannot be undermined. He has to be supported. This is the role of the producer. It's the role I hope that I play, and I think I played with Rob in the movie, is I was there to help him to make it as good as it could be every step of the way. Once again, Rob is a prince. He is a person who wants it to be good above all else and is willing to listen to advice and to suggestion and to idea and to change. And I think that it's a situation that probably happens all too infrequently in the movie and television business because egos tend to get in the way. But when you find these situations and you can cultivate them, I think that you can make a better project, a better show, a better movie, with many heads, with one like-minded goal. I'd say this about exceeds your minimum daily requirement. We tell lots of different kinds of stories on the X-Files. We tell good, scary monster stories. We tell uh, what I call weird science stories. (laughs) We tell technology stories. We also tell these conspiracy (laughs) stories, which have become the mythology of the show. They've actually become the heart of the show, or the backbone, if you will. The whole series began with the idea that Mulder's sister had been abducted by aliens when he was 12 years old. And that idea was what pushed Mulder toward the X-Files, what made him start to look at these cases of the paranormal in a very personal way. It was about finding his sister. So the government conspiracy was a conspiracy to hide the existence of extraterrestrials from the American public. So Mulder has a convergence of two things. He's got the belief that his sister was taken by extraterrestrials, something you could find in the X-Files. And he's got a belief now that the government is conspiring to keep these truths away from him. So the series works best on a personal level in this way because the stakes are very personal in the mythology shows in the shows about the conspiracy ultimately because Mulder lost his sister to a conspiracy and Mulder ultimately ended up losing his father to conspiracy. Scully now has lost a sister to the conspiracy. These are very important things on a personal emotional level to the characters and so I felt to make the movie to be honest to the five years of the show and honest to the origins of the show, it needed to be a movie about the most personal, passionate part of the show, which is the quest for the truth about why these things happened to me, why these things happened to Scully, why these things happened to Mulder. And it was also a way to tell a big science fiction story without having to explode the television series or re-explain the television series perfectly. It was a way to use the series to launch into the movie and use the movie to launch back into the series. A standalone story would have made a perfectly good movie, I think, but it would not have been contiguous with and a part of emotionally the series in a way that I really wanted it to be.
1: When I saw The Wizard of Oz when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, I thought, wow, movies, what is that? Movies are magic. Look, the are flying monkeys and the wizard. I'm scared and I'm happy and I'm sad and I'm all these emotions and I'm just watching a picture and listening to the dialogue and the music and the sound. What, is mu- what are movies? Right? Then my parents were big movie buffs and we'd be sitting around the house. Sister Karen and mom and dad and and some movie come on and mom would say oh look there's Lionel Barrymore and this is directed by uh, Robert Siodmak, and this is so I knew all the names before I was a teenager. All the old movies you know dad was hip on everything mom knew everything about movies just so as a film buff or a film historian the bedrock was laid just in my household and then as my interest grew I started seeking movies and watching more and so watching Martin Landau on Mission Impossible and you know I mean I remember that so when the day comes that I get to direct Martin Landau I'm two people I'm a little boy looking at a dream come true and I'm the director but I can't let Martin Landau know that I'm like in awe and he was awesome in Tucker and he was ah, he's Academy a so the first thing I'm shooting with Martin Landau is Mulder's point of view of him at the end of the bar. And he's just this character in the shadows down there. So I got two cameras. I got a wide and a tight. And we do the first take. But just before we roll, he says, uh, "He goes, hey, Rob, what's the, what's the B camera? What lens is that? And I said, oh, it's a 150. He goes, OK, so you're right here. And he put his hand right on the frame line. And we all turn and went, oh, this is a pro. Okay, right here. He was 70 feet from the camera. Oh, okay, you're right there. right? Okay, got it. All right, I know what I'm doing. All right, let's go. Ready. Action. Cut. Now, all those extras and everything. Then I'm in the other end of the bar at the monitor. So I say cut, and I'm on my way to Martin. I'm getting through the part in the Red Sea, through all the extras. And I find him standing, looking over the top of the extras, looking for me. Like, like matters. I don't know what. I walk up, and he goes, how was that? And Martin Landau... Now I'm a little boy all of a sudden. is asking me if what he just did was OK. So I keep the director face on. I said, "I don't want to know what you're thinking. That time you reacted, and I could figure out that you were suspicious. I don't want to know that. I want to know nothing. Just the fact that I cut to you, sitting there, looking our direction, and cut back to Mulder, is all I need. The audience is going to wonder what you're about. So don't say anything. Got it. Let's roll. I'm walking back to my monitor and I'm having a complete out-of-body experience. I am directing a major motion picture and I just gave Martin Landau, Academy Award winner, direction and he looked at me right in the eye and as soon as I gave him the direction he that said, no yes sir, and went back to his chair and said, roll camera. We did it a few more times
0: and I thought, you know what, life is pretty good. In the television series, Agent Mulder is always coming to Agent Scully and you know, waking her up in the middle of the night, uh, uh, bringing her into his office, showing her something that uh, that cannot be explained, or she cannot explain it scientifically, and it sends them on their way into an X-file. Something similar happens in the movie. Uh, Agent Mulder, having uh, sort of been drinking away his his sorrows, goes to uh, Agent Scully's apartment and uh, wakes her up and brings her down to uh, this morgue to show her something. Uh, What's important to the television series, as well as the movie, is that it all works on real science if it weren't for her abilities as a medical doctor to question things there would be no believable science fiction Mulder would be without someone to refute uh, what he's saying someone to do the foundational work on which he can build his theories of science fiction I tried to come up with some signature visuals that would catch
1: your eye and say just pay attention this is somebody you should sort of keep an eye on and the first shot was going to be the choppers against the moon, coming over horizon, approaching the tent city in Texas. The shot itself just needed to be striking. It's the first X-File image in the movie. The rest of it is pretty much, um, you know, with the X-Files look. But in terms of a signature X-Files image, that's the first one, and it needs to ring the bell quite loudly. And <clears throat> I can tell you, the moon is a—it's probably a Hubble shot something and the helicopters are completely uh, synthetic, completely CGI manufactured. I can tell you they all looked almost that good on the first try. That shot just happened easily and simply. It was unlike all the other CGI shots. The fumes from the exhaust sort of roiling in front of the moon, you know, that's something you're familiar to seeing, you know, in movies. That's all, the whole thing is synthetic. The leaves blowing on the hill, it's all synthetic. The whole thing is fake. Well, cigarette smoking man has been such a tremendous activator character. Anytime he's on the episode or in the story, we expect some terrible things to happen, either directly to our characters or he's going to cause an event to happen and he's motivated based on his own needs and what, you know, serves him best. Um he is a villain that people love to hate. He, on screen, is a very cinematic character because he wears a long dark coat, smokes, and you get the smoke, very noir-esque, noir-esque sort of look, and uh, doesn't say much, and leaves a great deal to your imagination to wonder what he's thinking and planning. A classic villain. And it seems to be responsible for the most heinous crimes on the X-Files. And, and so you've got to include him when you want to have the highest drama because he's he's up to the worst, no good. We've turned him in the movie and in, the, in this following season into not such a black and white bad guy that his motives might have been disguised by terrible consequences of his deeds, but in fact he's actually been trying to, what he says is, protect Mulder or or to protect Scully or to do the right thing for mankind when all, of, all along we think he's been actually trying to extinguish it. But nonetheless, it's just from a, a director's point of view, from a storyteller's point of view, you just want to have him on the screen because he tends to bring out the worst in people and I think people anticipate you know, what terrible thing is he up to. So you've, you've got the, the direct effect of his actions and the anticipation factor is very strong with him because you know it's if he's not doing something now what's going to what is he going to be doing
0: soon it's it's kind of uh, a conceit this this truth is out there mantra to be honest because uh, i don't pretend to know the truth but uh, the characters are searching for it along with with me and the other writers on the show uh... we're We're exploring themes, we're exploring science uh, as it kind of presents itself to us. We're really trying to stay up with, in the show and in the movie, the uh, science that we read about in journals and magazines and newspapers every day. And it's fascinating to do. We're at a time in life right now where the advances in knowledge is amazing in genetics and uh, what we know about DNA and what we have come to suggest and to theorize about what products we are of our genetic makeup our uh, the neo-darwinist says that uh, we are just robots carrying out uh, the instructions that are inside of us there's also something called junk dna which is part of our makeup that scientists actually don't know its function and the idea that we have something inside of us that no one knows why it's there or what it does is a wonderful thing to explore because no one else knows the truth we're sort of uh, searching for it I think, like good science fiction, along with scientists uh, who are working, you know, currently in the field. Concussive organ failure due to proximal exposure to source and flying debris.
1: Once we're inside the morgue, um, we're starting to show some, you know, the, the great classic creepy X-Files images with the the, the sticky skin and, and what has happened um, uh, biologically and physiologically with this, with this fireman, which is his skin has been made translucent, that ties into the skull found in the cave with the little boy, and now here we're finding the skin is is uh, sort of becoming like jello, and and um, uh, as though almost a paint thinner has been poured on a person, and and the, and the skin is starting to eat away. Um, but what, what we learn um, is that uh, he's beaten, being eaten from the inside out, um, slowly, and he's. Uh, Scully, who is our you know resident scientist, can't figure out what the heck's going on. So Mulder is going to ask her to stay and do some do some research on her own. She's reluctant, of course. Um, her career is in jeopardy right now. She's in the process of trying to relocate, and um, you know say goodbye to the X Files. And meanwhile, Mulder's saying, "Well, okay, while you're thinking about that, uh, you know, do some illegal research for me." And she's saying, "You know, why why risk the, my future so that you can?" you know go on another bug hunt that you can you can uh you know uh, prove once again that the government's corrupt we've already proved that And he says yes but you know i want to find out who who committed these crimes and that's the right thing to do and don't you want to do the right thing we're now going back and forth between the kurtzweil Mulder story and scully uh... back in the uh... naval base And, uh, you know, this this is a scene where Mulder enters Kurzweil's apartment, and obviously something's gone wrong here. He's being, um, his his apartment's being searched by the police. Um, And uh, we learn that uh, Kurzweil is a, a, a gynecologist. And that's a very deep, um, Reference to uh, the women who were tested uh, in the series uh, for the for the diehard fan, knowing that all the women who were tested and utilized for cancerous experiments and many of those who died, um, he is somebody who has been a part of that, uh, and who is now on the outs with the uh, conspiracy. Um, some jokes about uh, Mulder needing a proctological exam and.
0: And <laughs> hey, you want a call if we turn up this Kurzweil? Don't bother.
1: Here we are outside of Washington, a.k.a. downtown Los Angeles on Normandy with the blue sunrise sky, which means we're just, you know, shooting until the last moment of dark and finding a private space here for Mulder and Kurzweil to have
0: a, uh, a meeting. It was my chance, of course, to cast people that I've always admired in movies, uh, character actors, wonderful character actors like Armin Mueller-Stahl and Martin Landau. Luckily, I had the good fortune of not just writing for them but being able to cast the people I actually wrote for in the roles that we had created for them. Martin Landau was perfect as the Kurzweil character. He is a combination of the credible character because he has a certain number of facts that check out about his life and about what he is suggesting and has a certain uh, incredibility because of the outlandishness of his story and because he delivers them in a way that begs credulity. He's not uh, a person who inspires confidence in telling this story, but it's enough confidence for Mueller. So it's a character who has a vagueness about him, who has a quality that uh, suggests that he may or may not be telling the truth, which is perfect for X-Files. So a character who can deliver something and make you ill at ease, and make you uh, uncomfortable, who make you uh, doubt him, but at the same time giving that? you just enough information to make you curious, to make you want to go forward, this is a great X-Files character. The idea that I'm standing on the set the first day Martin Landau worked talking to him after having watched him you know, in Mission Impossible since I was a kid. It has the common, the sort of combined quality of making you feel very old and also of making you feel like a kid again because here you are talking to a guy who helped shape your imagination as a child. But it was a treat to work with him because first of all, he's a trooper. There was a a night where we shot the scene in the little alleyway between the two buildings where he ends up delivering to Mulder what is really the essence of the conspiracy. That scene was shot over a night and into the next morning. And here you are looking at an actor who is of a certain age, who went all night long, whose voice started to give out on him, but who kept going take after take after take, didn't want to break, didn't want to stop, didn't give up. It is about the work for them. And it, it was um, uh, a great scene in the end. And it was because Martin Landau gave it every bit that he had and all night long. So in, in, the, in the parallel, sequence
1: back and forth between Mulder learning about the 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 depth of the conspiracy and and the reaches of it the far reaches of all the way to the president's office and back and forth to scully learning about uh what is the the biology the, the 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 science behind the effect of the black oil on the body here we see a translucent piece of bone a rib and that ties back into the translucent fireman that ties back into the 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 skull in the cave and now we're starting to see that this this is the the result of your body being infected by the black oil um, it doesn't mean anything to Scully yet um, because she's too busy trying to avoid capture um, and sit around and summate what's just happened uh, with, the, with the body but for the audience that's the correlation is the the tie-in between the oil has affected the Neanderthal and the firemen Um, And if we were to see the boy, he'd be in the same shape in the rib cage here of the fireman, um, showing a translucent bone. Uh, And Mulder, now having heard all this about the depth of the conspiracy, calls Scully, and and, uh, and she's afraid. And she's heard, she's seen some things that that bother her, but um, she's still reluctant. And now with her findings in the body and what he's heard from Kurzweil, he needs her more than ever to keep going um, because there's more to find and and they're they're actually on to something here. Pieces are adding up. This sequence of, of Scully being caught I think would have been made better had we understood the geography between the autopsy room where she was working and this room because to me the distance between opposing forces uh, increases and decreases tension as they get further and closer away, uh, uh, further and closer to each other. Um, and not, for me, not knowing that that a morgue uh, refrigerator was 50 feet away from the other room. So in my mind, as she goes in the other room, I can sort of click off the amount of time it would take him to walk. My tension increases in my own mind. And uh, But we didn't do that. We uh, We just didn't have the the resources at the time to create the hallway set, but that is one way that I think tension can be uh, increased and decreased is by always showing the distance between the two uh, the two parties. Now here we've got Mulder in the FBI office with this agent, um, and they're trying to look into the the rubble from the building explosion and find more translucent bones. Um, and and what Scully's going to find here, unspoken, uh, is the same. Um, uh, molecular structure from the from the uh, bone found in the rubble is what she's seen, um, um, you know, back at the coroner's office, and um, she's going to understand that, that there is in fact um, a tie-in between uh, the firemen and and what Mulder's talking about.
0: This is
1: actually a. A, a set we made in the, oh, a giant computer room in the Unical building downtown Los Angeles. Um, we put the dividing walls up, but, you know, we, to get that, that look sort of uh, reminiscent of all the president's men in the in um, in the uh, um, in the office there with, with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, all those fluorescent lights that go on forever, uh, we built this little lab with a little hot zone right in the center, you know, with our own little light box above to stage around, but, uh it's all a big set dressing job. And now Scully is here, has without saying anything, looked up in shock as she realizes she's seen a tie in between the structure of the bones and, and what she saw back at the office. This shot with the kids is really just a off the cuff thing I had made up on the day. I saw the opportunity while we were scouting and then as the sun is setting here, it's nearly out of the sky. You have these little kids, you know, playing in the swing sets and running up the ladders and just creating a, a contrast um, between you know, here's the worst conspiracy known to man and right outside the backyard of these little kids playing. Uh, we're introducing for the first time uh, in the ten sequence here the, the Scully transport um, cryo container, um, which is what we will see later in the movie is what carries Scully off to the Antarctic. Um, the the thinking behind the design was to be as industrial and, and as... Um, um, you know durable as possible because it gets used over and over and over and I wanted to stay away from shiny chrome and polished surfaces and and anything that didn't look like it get it gets used it's it's sort of a what would a D9 look like a D9 bulldozer which is the largest bulldozer they make as far as I remember uh, you know after lots of usage well it doesn't look shiny and polished it's pretty beat up and 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 actually John Deere was sort of a, a metaphor we used for looking at um, ways to design surfaces for a lot of this stuff Um, tough and durable was the was the was the idea the tents were all basically you know what could you what could you set up and 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 tear down in a moment's notice and it's all rock and roll truss and and uh you know tents and and stuff that that's that's prefab and and goes up and down in a moment's notice
0: jesus
1: Here's a tentpole scene in the movie for tension where we've been doing a lot of exposition and sort of listening to people describe, uh, and you know, a lot of saying and movies are about showing. And, and so here was a, a very important sequence in the movie that would ratchet the tension up and give us a, a good boo in the middle of the movie and then carry forward the, you know, what, what, what's the monster up to? It's got to be a nail-biting, edge-of-your-seat, white-knuckle tension scene. Otherwise, you know, I failed as a storyteller. And again, one of the more important ways to create tension is once you establish your opposing forces, you've established your, your threat to your your protagonist or whoever who is the eventual victim, it's the distances between the two forces that, for me, are one of the most, more important elements of tension. Because the closer the, the threat is to the person, the greater the tension, and the further away, the opposite. And so by moving this creature Uh, From the beginning of the scene where he seems about 40 feet away and he's not too agitated to, in a very quick motion, he's on the other side of the cave and now he's, you know, within 10 feet. You know, Braunschweig goes from looking like curious and in awe of of, uh, actually witnessing through his own eyes what the creature looked like to uh, a look of resignation where he realizes he's now just having the last look at this thing because he's dead. And uh, that's all done through geography. And so tie-ins between the, t- between the two opposing forces is uh, to me essential. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> the People who make up the conspiracy are mostly men in their uh, 50s, 60s, and, and 70s, the idea being that these were people who were in positions of power or of fledgling, burgeoning power in uh, during the Cold War, and uh, as the Cold War escalated and then collapsed, these men were in positions to learn certain things as a result of uh, secret scientific experiments, uh, um, Cold War uh, politics. They splintered and or split off from the uh, uh, body of a government that they were working for and banded together with this new knowledge of the existence of extraterrestrial life and used that knowledge to their own purpose. They are elders, we call them, uh, men of, from different nations, all of whom have kept the secret to themselves and will do anything to protect it. So what we're seeing is really the uh, result of the predictions, I think, about the military industrial complex, about global politics being shaped by uh, not necessarily um, the good of the people, but by moneyed interest. And I I think that it is uh, allegorical in that way with what we're seeing in the, uh, uh, in the, in the world today. Uh, we do have a, a rather um, sort of far-fetched idea which, uh, about uh, alien life, but I think the uh, world it takes place in and the players are all too believable as people who have may um, in fact find reasons to uh, be uh, involved in something um, like a global conspiracy uh, for purposes that are completely selfish. John Neville has uh, been on the show. Uh, he plays a character named the well-manicured man. All these, all the bad guys uh, don't have names. They only have d- descriptions. Uh, and uh, he uh, is in, an important part of the group of elders who run the conspiracy because he's the voice of reason. He's a person who believes that violence is the wrong way in which to uh, protect the secret, that uh, you need to uh, let a certain amount of information out so as to sort of keep your uh, uh, pursuers, uh, close so you can control them. They all are in service to the leader, a man named Strughold, who has been a name only in the X-Files, but who becomes embodied by Armin Mueller-Stahl in the uh, in the X-Files movie. That I actually got to write this character and then cast exactly who I wanted was a, a huge thrill because I think Armin Mueller-Stahl is one of the most interesting, intense uh, actors of a certain age and quality. And so when I got to meet him and uh, to see him work and to see the way he ad- took the words uh, and, and added to them and, uh, and, and gave them uh, a certain rhythm and pace, he made the uh, somewhat far-fetched ideas uh, uh, of this uh, science fiction notion that, the, uh, that aliens are uh, plotting to colonize the world. He took it and uh, made it believable because uh, he uh, gave the character uh, um, the credibility that, uh, that needed to sort of um, uh, bring home uh, the central idea.
1: For me, there, I, I think, a funny moment when the park is left after the cleanup. You cut from the cabal meeting, and Armin Muellerstahl says, you know, we must take away that which he cares about the most. Cut to Scully. <gasps> Audience, ooh, know, they're gonna kill they're Scully. I don't see any then cut the wide and theory, see that they're in this park. Decide. What have Enjoyed they done? It's a cover-up, right? Okay, so we need a park. We need a lawn, we need sod, we need a jungle gym, we need a little park that they've donated and they've given us some sign that says, you know, donated to the people of uh, Blackwood County, whatever. Well, we show up in the morning and the park is about as big as my kitchen at home. It's a little tiny chunk of sod. It's a disaster. Now, this is one of those days where you look at the call sheet, you think, if I start really fast, and I sprint like mad and we don't eat lunch maybe we'll make this day well the park is wrong and then Chris shows up and his hair just stands straight up what is this you know there was so much stress that there was no stress for me we're shooting we're shooting we're shooting we're shooting we get to the little boys and by the time I shoot the master of uh, it's a low panning shot where the boys pan right, they ride into their marks left to right and they stop and the David walk, and Jillian walk up. The sun is, there's like, it's just over the mountains. If you look in the background, it's actually getting a little lens flare because the camera's on the ground. The sun's actually going right through the little boy's back, right over his seat in the lens. It's on the horizon. I had one camera position and what I would do is I got behind the camera and i just pan to the third boy. I'd say, do your dialogue. And then I'd pan over and I'd go back Okay, do it again. Go back, go back, go back. The sun is gone. And the sky is dark gray, and it's actually an 18K light, cross-lighting, because there's no sun. So I'm hoping the lab can, like, save my life here. And I'm panning to each one of the three boys, saying, do your dialogue. Stop. And they don't know. what I'm like a madman at this point. The, The little boys are trying to run a scene. And I say, stop, do your dialogue again. Okay, look further to the right. Okay, now pan over. Okay, now you do your dialogue. Okay, funnier, funnier. Okay, you know, it's like the most insane directing you can imagine. Cut, print, we got it. I turn over to Danny, he just falls out of his chair. Can't believe we did it! Oh, I can't believe Unmarked it, Barman. and I can't. We did. Oh my God! Oh my. God. Chris is laughing because Danny is just a big raw nerve, and we pull it off. And you know, it's actually kind of funny and kind of cute. And every time I look at that scene, I realize that we made that by the skin of our teeth. And in in all of that, there's a few of the shots, even the one where Dave and Jillian walk over to the lawn, that I think are really shots that people compliment me on. I thought, if you knew how that stuff came out, you know, by the skin of my teeth, you know, it was not sitting in a drawing room with a storyboard artist conjuring up master images. It was, oh, my God, I'm in big trouble. We're never going to make the day, and i got to look like I know what I'm doing.
0: We made this movie in between television seasons. At Christmas, Frank Spotnitz and I came up with the story, worked it out, laid it out very carefully. In February of the next year, I snuck away for 10 days. This is during the making of both a season of X-Files and the first season of Millennium. I snuck away for 10 days, I still don't know how I did it, and uh, wrote about two-thirds of the movie. It was enough to give the studio to show them what we wanted to do. They green-lighted the project as a result of that, that two-thirds, I think something like 90 pages and we started to prep the movie over the course of the next several months, that being March, April, May, beginning shooting the movie in June, I believe. And it was a short prep. It was costly. I wouldn't ever do it that way again. It was all done as the thing we were doing in addition to the television series, which had a certain amount of Uh, benefits because we all knew the TV series we all knew the things that worked we didn't have to create something completely from scratch so that was helpful but no one was used to working on that pace and when the work weekends you spend more money and the budget goes up for things that uh, don't ever show up on screen just because you're pushing the limits of time because we needed to get this movie made in the course and span of the time between seasons for and five of the television series before the movie was even finished filming we were back into our process again uh, of coming up with stories and writing scripts and going right back into the television series so it really was done on our vacation time and uh, we ended up working for two years straight all of us that is probably not the best way to work but it's the only way we could do this movie which we were all determined to do when they've
1: actually stopped at the crossing the train is real there the only thing we had to do when they were having the argument at the railroad crossing was remove Saugus, California, which was a you know freeway, a hillside, dwellings, lights, whatnot. It becomes a removal process. Now, oddly enough, I had originally envisioned that scene that when Mulder came around the front of the car, that he would sort of kneel down and use the headlight to illuminate the map. And that while Scully was, you know, taking a strip off him that David was down you know, looking at the, the map. Well, when we got there and staged it, we just decided that that wasn't the right idea. It just didn't seem like David should squat down. Well, what we didn't think of, of that, that moment, which we should have, was that by him standing up, every time you cut to him, you have to remove sagas from the background. And so it was like, you know, 30,000, 30,000, 30,000, 30,000 30, every time you cut to him. And um, so probably would have been better off having him squat down in front of the car would have been fine. But, uh, no, that sequence was merely just a subtractive problem. Crossing over the uh, track and the car following, you know, the next shot's the train coming towards camera, camera moves out of the way and the car comes over. That's all practical. But the train from the bluff is uh, CGI. It's computer generated. And it uh, originally wasn't moving. So the last time you see it, it goes tearing by and goes into the tunnel. They drive to the bluff, they get out of the car, and they walk to the edge of the bluff. You look out, you see this vast expanse of cornfields and these domes in the middle of the arid desert.
0: I used to go to a dairy farm in the summers and we would milk cows and we would have a kind of farm experience. These were friends of my parents and we used to go into these cornfields and if you've ever gone into a cornfield at night, It's one of the most frightening things in the world. I mean, you don't know what's going to pop out, what's going to grab you, what spider is going to come out. There's just something eerie about a cornfield. It's organized, it's in rows, yet you can get trapped inside. You don't know how to get out. So this is a certain fear I have. And so why not put Mulder and Scully into a similar situation? And as it worked out, the science, which is the uh, genetically altered corn, worked for the story. It also dovetailed with another fear of mine, which is the fear of being stung by something. We're all children when it comes to stinging things, and for me, it's bees and yellow jackets and things that pack a wallop, scorpions, centipedes, all those stinging things that were so frightening to you as a kid, somehow on a gut level as an adult, they are frightening as well. So you have this opportunity to do something original, scary, and suspenseful, and you have an ability to do it with architecture you've never seen before and make it beautiful, make it a big screen idea, giant vistas. It all just came about as a need to do something wholly original that we would never be able to do in the television series. I got the audience's mind turning. Um,
1: they're thinking, because it's the X-Files, spaceship. Those may be spaceship hangers, who knows and I want to leave the possibilities open as long as I can so that their minds are ready to accept anything. And then we build the tension by stepping into this dome and you've got architecture that is, its you, you can't figure out quite what you're looking at. The audience is working very hard to try to decipher what it is these this, these squares might be. They know because it's the X-Files, that there's going to be a payoff here. What in the world is it going to be? Maybe. Uh, aliens are going to pop up. Uh, you know, Are they going to get shot? Um, is anything, maybe nothing's going to happen. Who knows? That's exactly what we want to do. Then we rise, have rising tension again through the slats opening and making a lot of noise, from very, very quiet to making a lot of noise with the slats, the louvers, and then the bees come up, and you can't figure out what you're looking at. I think it probably takes you a couple of cuts into the the bee dome to figure out that they're bees. So you're confused, but they're they're freaking out, and you're just—it's a panic all of a sudden. We had 300,000 bees flying around. Never seen it before. By the way, David and Jillian were never stung in all the filming, and they didn't wear gear. The crew had the nets and the gloves and the thing. The crew got stung. David and Jillian, with nothing on, never got stung. So. Then you go outside, and we made it. Okay, now the ebb goes down. The rhythms sort of stall for a moment. But again, it's that uncomfortable quiet. Something else is happening. And then I wanted, because the audience, I think, is always expecting to see a spaceship in this movie, I wanted to introduce the helicopters in such a way that you thought, spaceship, I knew it. Here it comes, and then the light dancing across the top of the corn stalks. That was the one take where the chopper, who was 300 yards from camera, and flying, you know, by his altimeter, and the cameraman, the steady cam operators standing, you know, at some random height. Somehow the physics and the geometry of these two were just perfect for that one take where the light just was about three inches below the top of the stalk, the corn stalks, and danced across, and you thought, there it is, there's the first spaceship of the movie. And then it turns into a, a helicopter. Oh! You know. So now I'm still teasing you, still making you wait for The extraterrestrial in the movie. I think it's just an expectation when you come in to see the film. From this point on, I have nowhere to go but up, which is high speed, full velocity, sprint. Now, I've also got the audience thinking that there's going to be gunfire. They're going to shoot at us. Black helicopters at night shoot at us. That's just what I'm thinking. They don't, but the scene goes on. And we're running, and now Mulder and Scully get lost in the fray. And the choppers are doing what? I'm starting to get concerned because now I no longer can anticipate the gunshot because when the gunshot goes off, I just have to avoid the bullets so I can figure that one out. And again, it's, it's it's just trying to stay ahead of the audience to say, you've not seen this before. You can't anticipate the conclusion. You can't anticipate the consequences because I'm not giving you anything familiar to deal with. So the sort of herding of Mulder and Scully out of the cornfields is unnerving because I don't know where the other shoe's going from. Now, I thought if they shot at us and we escaped, we're safe. They dealt the punishment for being there. They caught us. They shot at us, and we made it out. That's the end of it. No. They don't shoot at you. Mulder and Scully get out. I feel incomplete. I feel like the punishment's not been dealt. I would just sort of shoot out of the cornfield, but it feels like... The, that's not complete the arc is not complete what's going to happen now how is this going to pay off later in the movie what's going to happen to Mulder and Scully it's actually a nice little grace note that Danny came up with was uh, Scully you know after being up for three days and never having a chance to go home and print stops for a moment and Looks at a reflection in the photograph of a former FBI boss and and prints herself for a second. It was a nice little touch of class. Um, this is um, one of the ideas in the script that was actually most challenging because it's tying in uh, principal cast um, and and a bee that's got something very specific to do, which is to crawl out from underneath Scully's collar and then return to the collar and just sort of set up uh, a later um, scene. And it was something that none of us ever thought would really happen including the bee trainer who never told us that until after it was done but um, he basically had a, a pheromone uh, box or a small trap underneath the center of a collar and the bee came out after being placed in, a, in a, just a plane tube crawled out from her collar and searched for this pheromone trap and then went back up into it and um, uh, we tied it in with the dialogue and with the actress uh, both Jillian and, and Blythe Danner, but uh, ended up moving it in, into a different place in the scene. But nonetheless, th- this bee performed this this little staging miracle that that uh, uh, we all thought would take, you know, half a day to film and and uh, would never really work anyway. And here comes a little girl now, and uh, you see the cameras moving, so it's all timed with focus and uh, you know telephoto lens, which makes it even more difficult. And um, you know, performed a, an
0: on-camera miracle. What do you think? When Agent Mulder and Agent Scully get back from Texas in the cornfield, something changes here. Uh, Agent Scully comes forward after having been, you know, uh, away from the FBI uh, against order. She comes back with some hard evidence of what Mulder has been suggesting, that uh, there is a conspiracy afoot. She presents this to the OPR board and uh, puts herself at some risk for doing it. In fact, it puts herself at great risk. Agent Mulder, who has taken her out to this uh, place, uh, shown her what he has uh, with the bees and the uh, the mysterious cornfield. He now goes to Kurtzweil, the person who sent him there in the first place, to tell him what he's seen. And Kurtzweil says to him that he uh, what he's seen uh, doesn't he, he can't explain that he doesn't have explanations for it, and he actually leaves Mulder hanging out on a limb. So while Agent Scully has been brought by Mulder. To some conclusion, Agent Mulder is having the rug pulled out from underneath him, and the story uh, shifts here. It is uh, now uh, Agent Mulder who has great doubt and Agent Scully who has some great belief, but the consequence of her belief is in fact going to derail not just the investigation but their partnership. There's
1: a sequence after Mulder arrives back at his apartment to confirm Kurtzweil's existence um, and friendship with his father where Scully comes in and says I've quit I'm leaving I'm going off to so-and-so and I don't want to stay because I know you'll talk me out of it so I gotta leave now bye so she runs out What's wrong? Mulder pursues her down the hallway and has already confessed her in the room that you know now is the worst time of all you know we're really on to something here I need you I need you, I need you. This is the theme of the movie. Mulder needs Scully. I debated whether or
0: not even to tell you and to
1: never before in has he come to that understanding quite so strongly as he does in this story.
0: So walk away.
1: she's running because she's afraid that did, he's funny. going to talk her out of it. And so you the best know. thing she can do is just hit the elevator button and go, go, go. Never she never happened. makes it, which is her first mistake. And. Mulder also knows that that's where she's headed, is out the door. So he's got to tell her why it is that she's so important to him and tell her once and for all that in fact the whole time that she's been together, that the two of them have been together, that she has made him better, that she has made him feel not like an outcast, not like discarded FBI trash, but actually somebody who was worthy of her friendship, her and that person. you know, as he says has made her a whole made him a whole person. I owe you so in a scene filled with such virtue, such you know people expressing their highest thoughts and feelings towards each other, you come to a sort of a pinnacle of respect and mutual admiration that it leads into an intimate moment that neither one of them expect or we're sort of working towards. It just sort of happens, you know, you just keep going and going and arguing and arguing and all of a sudden it's not an argument, it's sort of, you know, we're for each other, we're for each other. And we come to the opportunity of a kiss for the first time. But it's not out of lust. it's not out of any of the obvious reasons or typical reasons, it's out of just absolute overwhelming respect for each other. Out of that respect becomes an emotional response where you transcend sort of logic and thinking and it becomes more visceral and human. The only place for him to go in my mind to express the next thought is to kiss her. And how do we do that in the X-Files fashion, which is, you know, you never really give them anything that they want. You just sort of lead them down the road and say, that's all you get. And then, because of the bee, The moment is abrupt and abbreviated and stops short of sort of the zenith that I think the audience is wanting. But we don't want to end the movie by completely cheating the audience. We'd like to at least add up in parts a kiss. So there's the very good idea in the spaceship where Mulder is trying to rescue Scully, and just when they get to the vent to exit, she collapses again and she passes out and she's not breathing. What do you do when somebody's not breathing? mouth mouth resuscitation. So you've got the intention of the kiss and the physical act of them touching mouths. And I believe in Chris's mind, the idea was you take those two, you add them together, and that's a kiss. That counts. Sort of in the the frustrating X-Files fashion, that's a kiss. And I think, obviously, there's more gained for the audience out of the hallway kiss. And I don't think anybody really walked out thinking, well, they sort of did, because if you had the two together. But it doesn't matter, because the idea is they were going to. As a story point, that counts as the kiss. They, you know, It wasn't because they didn't stop themselves. Something else entered the scene and, and interrupted it. So. so now we have uh, Mulder what might be mortally wounded lying on the ground outside of his apartment and the next sequence is gonna be Scully being loaded in a container onto a cargo jet and and flown off somewhere um, masterminded by a cigarette smoking man and it was a sequence we shot in one night it was actually the last major day of filming for first unit It was really sort of a first second unit but we still had you know Ward and all the first unit uh, crew out there and uh, it was a great night down at Los Angeles International Airport, and it was just a, supposed to be just a cool X Files sequence where uh, you know something clandestine is occurring in, a, in the corners of an airport, and we've got security guards sort of looking out, and you know it was a sequence that we we barely completed in, in, in the course of the night. As a matter of fact, in some of the last shots of cigarette smoking man standing and watching from inside the airplane, you can see the sky starting to blue up from the from uh, sunrise in the background. The uh, the fun part about it was was again finding inventive ways to introduce CSM in the sequence, which I've done since uh, the character was created, and it's always, you know, sort of stealthy and and uh, and sometimes cliche, but but uh, always fun nonetheless. The best part about the entire night was that uh, I was going to finish the sequence, wrap the show, and then and then I drove over to the Bradley Terminal and and jumped on a plane and flew to Maui for five days and and uh, sat there sort of in in shock in my bed at the uh, Four Seasons in Maui and, and uh, couldn't believe what I'd just completed, which was 80 straight days of filming.
0: What are you doing? Reading this chart. Put it down. I'll put it down when I'm ready. Both of you I think he's coming out of He's coming, coming too.
1: Hey, Mulder.
0: There were Hi. certain characters we needed to uh, put in the movie who the fans had become very um, uh, fond of. And the lone gunman were three of those characters uh, so it was uh, difficult to find a way to to, uh, to put them in the movie and not have to explain too much who they were because uh, the audience who's been watching the television series for five years running knows who these guys are but uh, the the non-fan would have no idea so there's a very quick introduction of the uh, the lone gunman uh, they are explainers they are nerd scientists uh, guys who are sort of uh, fringe dwellers and to put them in a scene with agent Mulder, and then ultimately um, with the assistant director skinner uh, you ran the risk of uh bringing the movie to a dead halt the audience uh, not understanding uh, who they are what's going on and uh creating or ruining the uh, suspension of disbelief because these characters are kind of cartoonish. Uh, but I think we found a way to do it and to uh, use it as a transitional piece in the story. The, uh, the man who plays the government overlooker in, in the hallway, a person, the sort of ever-present um, shadowy government figure is actually the uh, assistant director on the picture who uh, we suited up, put a, a little earphone on him and he actually served quite well as our watchdog, uh, keeping tabs on Mulder, who escapes through the help of these characters, the lone gunman. The, the characters who make up the conspiracy have kept their secret, um, a secret by sort of maintaining a uni- united front uh, it's almost the sort of old mafia idea of omerta that uh, you don't, uh, y- you never divulge a secret. But inside the uh, the conspiracy, there are politics, and uh, the politics in the movie really focus on a uh, uh, the well manicured man, the voice of reason in the conspiracy, the man who does not like to resort to violence. He is, uh, though, put in a position and uh, taken to a place that is very awkward for him, which is a to commit an act of violence, to get rid of this character, Kurzweil, who they've allowed to to live because his ideas were so preposterous, his books were so outlandish and ludicrous that they felt that uh, what truth he was putting out to the public actually worked to their advantage. While it's quite real to them, the public wouldn't believe it. So the well-manicured man who objects to the, uh, what the conspiracy and conspirators have elected to do, which is to conspire with the uh, alien colonists. They send um, the well manicured man to destroy Kurzweil. In doing this, they actually set something in motion that they don't quite understand, and this plays to the character of, of the well manicured man. He has a bout of conscience. He thinks about his family. He thinks about the future. Uh, when he uh, uh, finally does do in Kurzweil as he is asked to do, he takes the opportunity to give Agent Muller all he'll need to uncover the thing that will make certain for him that what he has believed all along has been true that the government has been conspiring to keep these secrets a secret and in doing so the well-married man does something uh, that is quite heroic uh, he gives up his own life and um, it is uh, on that turn that uh, Mulder will proceed to his ultimate goal In terms of the
1: look of The X-Files, it is heavily influenced by the noir period of filmmaking, and, and it is, you know, very noir-esque, and that's, you know, it's a signature of the show. The problem is it's very hard to do, because it takes time to use less light, because you're working at the bottom end of, uh, of exposure on the negative. And we've experimented over the years with ways to get a good, rich, low-level look without it looking underexposed or grainy. And, you know, to sometimes great success and other times, you know, not so good, where the, basically you have a, a face floating in a black screen. But it's it's the look of the show. It is the touching on the things that, that, that scare us, which are, you know, taking out the trash late at night into the dark garage. When you're a kid, that's a spooky thing. What's going to come out and get you? It's, it, uh, it taps a nerve deep, deep inside of us that the spooky, creepy things that, that exist come out of the shadows. And that's where they come from, the X-Files, and it's anticipation that if we've got a monster or a villain who comes out in the dark, but we've only got him in the story two or three times, any time there's a shadow in that episode or that story, then you expect the possibility of the monster coming out of that dark area. So I explode my opportunity, my my, my um, tension uh, tenfold, because now you're wondering of which dark corners are going to jump out of, um, and it just creates suspense and anticipation and tension. And um, but nonetheless, it is much more difficult to shoot dark and shadowy than you know bright and shadowless. So here's one of the more pivotal scenes in the movie where we're one-on-one with well-manicured man, and he's doing something. Very uncharacteristic, which is revealing a great deal of information to us about the nature and the origins of the of the both the aliens and the conspiracy. and And uh, originally, a photograph was um, what had occurred with Skelly's with Mulder's sister and her abduction, um, but it proved to be just a bit longer than than was necessary, and uh, we decided to to uh, remove the references to to Mulder's sister um all the while we're cutting to uh the driver um who is surreptitiously watching us in the rearview mirror and and creating just a degree of tension because we're wondering first of all is well manicured man telling us the truth it all seems you know so far-fetched and and preposterous yet enough of it rings true to Mulder that it's stuff that we can complete we can believe um but does this mean that uh you know upon hearing all this information that we're gonna just be killed, and it's all for naught anyway little well, second unit in washington see outside the it's actually a, the drive by is actually shot outside the agriculture building because I thought that if anybody would get that, that was the uh department of agriculture and the tie in between the bees and the corn crops and the and the um the uh what was it Talitha Kumi, which was, I think, the first B episode, that there was some tie in between the Department of Agriculture and that add a little, a little layer to throw in there, even if it's, if it's too far um, removed to be understood. Then uh, the car comes to a stop, and we've set up tension in the alley. We've set up tension inside the car that makes us think that that now uh, Mulder not, might not be in uh, in such good shape. The, the door is locked. Now, well, manicured man has a gun, and Based on what we believe about well this may be Mulder's demise shockingly it's the driver who received the the bullet probably because he was gonna uh, because while well, manicured man was was saying things he shouldn't have been saying to Mulder was probably going to be shot himself the two of them were
0: the upholstery's already ruined get out of the car little time, what I've given you, the alien colonists don't yet know exists.
1: suppose on a storytelling level, this would be considered a dramatic low point for Mulder's character because we're still wondering whether or not he's going to receive a fatal bullet. Um, although we have been given the coordinates and the vaccine for Scully, you know, he's got the gun in his hand, he's already killed one person. You know, where are we going here? And, you know, the switch is, of course, we don't receive the fatal bullet, we receive, in fact, directions and and a, and a convincing um, urgence to get off and and, and save Scully. And um, you know we've got our our lucky rat who runs through the background. It was not us. It was just the good luck that day. And then uh, the 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 big surprise twist was the suicide of well manicured man and the car explosion. And and we had different ideas about how to explode the car. Uh, at one point, we we're going to do an implosion so as to be quieter about it. And another time, we we're going to do, you know, have uh, hundreds of little metal BBs come flying out as though he'd used um, some sort of a concussive um, grenade full of uh, BB shrapnel to, to kill himself and ended up with a good old fashioned car explosion. So we're dissolving from the, the black of night, the dark interiors, and the claustrophobic nature of the inside of a limousine into this, this vast white canvas of the Antarctic, and, and this is really the influence that, that uh, watching Lawrence of Arabia over and over during the course of filming had on me, and, and uh, wanting to really utilize the, the, the width and scale of the movie screen for the X-Files and, and make it larger and, and on a grander scale than ever before um and it's a tie-in also it's a book-ended tie-in from the beginning of the movie with the the image of the the two neanderthals running at us so we're sort of framing our story here and now i've got mulder in a um a snowcat and i was attempting to do something here that another little layer that that might be fun is uh, i put him in in a tucker snowcat and uh, Tucker, if, if you remember at least the movie, if not the, the, the story of the man himself, was a man up against you know, the big three and was a, was a small man defeated by the larger uh, conglomerate. And I thought that was an interesting uh, parallel with Mulder and what he was trying to do. So uh, it was a, uh, a layer thrown in there for somebody who was searching for meaning in anything and everything, and it was sort of fun. The extreme challenge here is of course when you're shooting on a snowbank that that everywhere you tread you you leave a mark and so if you're having shots like david up on the horizon after he's crawled out of the snow cat where you're seeing literally miles around and then, then you've got to keep that snow clear and so basically one take and you move to a different glacier and i wanted the the ribbon of track coming off that snowcat to go all the way to the horizon and then a single set of footprints coming from the snowcat so that means that the driver takes that snowcat uh, on the far side of the ring of the, the glacier field all the way around the the ice field drives it straight towards camera with me on the radio saying keep going keep going a little to the left a little to the right and then eventually stopping and the driver of the snowcat getting out and walking up towards camera so that then David, I just have to put on the other side of the rocks and have him pop up into the foreground. And you get what looks like you know, a single set of snowcat uh, tracks, and then David's footprints walking up. Meanwhile, the camera crew is, is helicoptered up to the top of uh, uh, um, uh, a summit. And you know we set up camera and wait for David. It takes about an hour and a half to do one shot. There are several shots in this sequence that do not include real David or nor was I there. E.J. Forrester was up directing it and we were using Mulder's double and, and, and some of the running shots uh, on the surface are, are Mulder's double. You know, I had one day with David up on the glacier trying to get all those shots, which was very difficult, of course, trying not to create you know, tracks everywhere. As soon as he goes through the ice, you're into a sound soundstage uh, on the 20th Century Fox lot, into a refrigerated sound stage. With uh, you know liquid nitrogen um, streaming down, um, which is actually basically cold smoke, which falls instead of rises or hovers like regular smoke, and um, trying to create the illusion that Mulder has th- dropped through layers and layers of of uh, ice down into you know thirty some, forty some feet below to the surface of what appears to be some sort of vacuum sucking the smoke down and then he drops down into a hole and now you're in a more symmetrical tube so wherever we are we're getting to something that seems to be more made as opposed to um, you know by the hand of man as opposed by the hand of nature and you know as Mulder is crawling down the tube you've got a mystery of okay where are we now what what could possibly be underneath this this ice field and and of course we reveal it one layer at a time, like peeling the onion, you just see it one layer at a time. And then the, now I've cut inside the uh, hallway, and you're seeing even more structure. Now we realize we are in a place that has been manufactured. And, uh, you know, David jumps down into the hallway, and the hallway needed to look like it went on forever when, of course, it went five feet behind him. But we created a, uh, a blue screen plate and then added in an echo of the uh, hallway behind him. So it looks like it wraps around for quite a long ways. Um, once you're inside the ship, it's this was the idea was to show how old the ship was and to see how long they had been encasing um, you know human beings all the way back to the Neanderthal period. And this gag never really paid off for us because we couldn't we couldn't get the thickness of the ice to look like it was, you know several inches of ice and to identify, uh, what would be the decayed body of one of the Neanderthals, although that's what it was supposed to be. Uh, we sort of tried and tried and tried and realized we should just go for what would look like a, um, a human being underneath the ice, and then you tilt down to the belly and you see the alien, and you start to get the idea of the heightening um, of the discovery, the levels of, of, of uh, science that are going on, and, and uh, just what a truly fantastic um, uh, conspiracy this is. He walks over to the edge of a of a uh, pipe uh, what looks like a large venting pipe and he looks down and he sees these pods hanging and and you realize that now this thing is not just this one layer but it's actually quite uh, recessed into the ground and establishing the idea from the pods that are hanging in that tube that there are many many of these pods and as we go along in the movie when he steps out onto the balcony we reveal the the absolutely massive scale of of this um, uh, interior and reveal even more down on the floor pods hanging from what looked like almost like a laundromat conveyor belt system moving these things along and that that, that is basically what this purpose of this thing is you know the, the, the extreme high shot of Mulder um, from far away and way up on the balcony is basically a shot of David walking on a small set the size of a dime and then the entire area the entire world around him 99% of that frame is all CGI uh, created um, you know David's face is real of course and against the, the a real background but it's oh it's maybe 40 feet long and 15 feet high and that's it and we're saying the ship is I think 1200 feet across or something so you've got a mix in here of of both um, practical and, and CGI images, um, you know, one of the challenges is how do we get Mulder from upstairs to downstairs in a, in a dramatic, cinematic way that's not going to be just, you know, climbing down boring, uh, you know, shoe leather. So we came up with the idea of, of him um, slipping and falling and sliding down this this uh, the top of one of these tubes, and of course we don't know where we're going so we're going to assume that it's not going to end well for him. And then you see that there is a bottom to it. But at the velocity he's traveling, and with him sort of careening off this uh, knuckle at the end, this uh, collar, um, you know, you got to have the shot where once he's hanging by his knuckles, he's, he's got to, uh, you've got to drop something because that's how you show depth. So we, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but it's his binoculars that actually fall out of his pocket and, and uh, fall down to their demise. And then uh, it's a combination in the overhead shots of both a pr- practical, uh, piece of tubing and then the a, a CGI work showing what would suggest you know hundreds of feet of death below him. It is um, you know the challenge of the storyteller to keep increasing the size of the of the uh, conspiracy and, and the size of the adventure and um, you know you've got to have some pretty impressive set pieces and, and, uh, and, and moments that, that, that ele- keep elevating Uh, the story and and, um, so you know you you need this kind of stuff to this kind of a set um, to uh, make it you know a big action summer movie so he finds this um, left behind wardrobe and of course course, uh, Scully's cross and he now knows he's founder and and, uh, as he comes around a corner reveal what appear to be a very fresh set of these cryopods compared to the ones upstairs which were encrusted and brown and sort of old. And we start seeing, you know, what look like modern day uh, human beings encased in what still looks like to be some sort of a more fluid, uh, not completely iced over uh, uh, pod until he finds what he was hoping to and and hoping not to find which is Scully and now trapped inside one of these. giant icicles basically and it's a mix of it's a mix of Jillian uh, in a in a water tank and also a Jillian um, uh, polyurethane cast inside of a, um, a pod that gives us the illusion that she's actually uh, encasing this stuff and, and then uh, We've got the I-Station footage, which was never planned originally, but we needed a little more information as to who was sort of running this whole thing and where did CSM fit in, so we, we built the built the inside of the I-Station and had a little running about and CSM looking like he's in charge. Um, panic that the ship is um, coming apart. Um, if there's an intruder. That's actually what it is, if there's an intruder. It's not the ship coming apart. That's, that's going to occur when Mulder injects this vaccine that we witnessed braunschweig uh inject into the side of the alien inside the cave and it's what made the alien stop attacking him for a moment um the point there was to sort of set up the idea that the aliens don't like this vaccine it not necessarily kills them but that they are um uh it's a hostile um uh, vaccine to the to the alien and after injecting scully you see something running out of her feed tube evacuating scully and that tube then shrivels up and dies and that's telling the audience that the vaccine does in fact work as a uh... antivirus against the alien and against the black oil and then the ship itself almost organically has a violent reaction to it um, and starts to sort of come undone and the idea is that it's Basically, the aliens are going to try to escape from the pods before the the vaccine, as as little as it is, um, you know, infects the entire ship and, uh, you know, brings them all to their demise. So these steam blasts start firing off, um, all of them, of course, CGI implanted, uh, you know, the hallway and the different steam vents. None of that's real. It's all sort of um, plates of hallways and then and then. um, placed uh, steam vents. Then we are intercutting now back and forth with chaos occurring in the ice station where CSM is calling for an evacuation. The ship is in some form waking up. So here is, is uh, CSM is, is uh, realizing that the whole thing is, is coming apart. There's a moment here where, where, where Mulder is, is uh, helping Scully out of the pod. And uh, the day we were filming in the spaceship, Thea Leone, David's wife, was on set and saw us doing the shot where he's carrying her away and suggested a moment where we actually saw him take her out of the pot, a very gentle uh, moment between the two of them and another sort of in the tone of the kiss, um, a tender moment between the two of them. And I thought it was a, a very good idea and we shot it uh, quickly and simply, but it was a nice uh, moment to add into the movie now we're um, seeing everybody evacuate we're going back to footage that was shot up, in, up on a glacier above Vancouver all of which was the the, the, the ice station and the, and the snowcats and all the camera equipment and all the personnel everybody in this sequence uh, including me and David for one day were flown up there by a helicopter so uh, everything you see made at that glacier at least to the edge of the glacier by, by a chopper this is the final chapter of Mulder rescuing Scully out of the spaceship. Down below the ship woke up somehow, we don't know what, but it started vibrating we know that the situation is getting uh, worse and worse for Mulder and Scully. So he's trying to uh, evacuate her out of the ship, trying to rescue her and, and uh, we're intercutting between two other sequences which is the evacuation or the escape of the, of the conspirators up on the ice field and also to the corridor where Mulder first entered which we see is now melting and, and the ship is actually waking up its inhabitants. We assume to the uh, detriment of Mulder and Scully. This is a part of the movie where it really is about movie magic because not much of this is real. You've you've got what is in reality, you know, sets made out of wood and nails and paint, and uh, creatures uh, which are men in rubber suits. And uh, you know, the secret is to hire the best people you can find, and hopefully, through the lens and to the audience, it looks real. Now we're coming into the second part of two parts that make a whole, which is the idea of Mulder and Scully kissing in this movie, which is something Chris wanted to give the audience. But he didn't want to give it to them in the standard fashion of them just, you know, exposing their feelings and then kissing. He broke it in two parts. The first part is in the hallway where they have the surprising intention to kiss um, out of respect. And then Scully passes out here in the corridor, and Mulder's going to have to revive her and that's going to have to be through mouth-to-mouth resuscitation which gives us the act or the physical act of touching lips and Chris thought maybe those two halves would create a hole giving them a kiss without actually having them kiss but I thought it was a brilliant idea
0: Jesus,
1: Rising tensions. We've got a lot of things going on in this sequence now. We've got Scully unconscious and creatures trying to break out and just like uh, the days of filming we also had a lot of things going on. These Creatures in the pods breaking out require a great deal of detailed work and different departments coming together. Physical effects creating the pods that they'll break out, and these are replaceable face plates that break, you know, and you got to put them back on. You've got puppeteers in suits who are holding, you know, a head on a stick with a trigger to make the eyes blink and the mouth open. Another puppeteer wrapped around him with the hands pounding on the glass, them being doused with water, literally working within the confines of the pod, which is nearly impossible being uh, uh, dumped on with water. Um, You've got puppeteers busting their head through the faceplate of this class. Steam effects, interacting with Mulder and Scully. There's a lot of things that come together to make this sequence look real. And it's anything but that on the set. And it's it's basically through the hard work and talent of the puppeteers and physical effects team and and, uh, never giving up that, that made it come true for us. The final sequence of Escape is back in the tube that Mulder first entered in, which is also now melted. And originally, we had filmed the alien in the suit, Tommy Woodruff, pursuing Mulder and Scully down the tube. And every time David would look back, you'd cut to the alien, and you'd cut the alien's point of view, and that's our tension. That's our, our final sequence. We realized, in fact, that we had shown too much of the alien, that like before in the movie, less of the alien was scarier, more to your imagination. And We thought that was actually the sequence through the X-Files prism that made it more realistic. So now we return to the ice surface, and this is one of the most challenging sequences in the entire movie because so much of it is synthetic. Um, it's a lot of uh, Mulder and Scully on a on a green screen stage with uh, you know 120 by 70 foot wide ice field surrounded by green screen, and the rest of it is is the artistry and and uh, work of Matt Beck and, and his uh, model team and a CGI team, and then you know endless hours in a screening room with with, uh, you know, Dan and, and, and Frank and Chris and I um, trying to find, uh, you know, sky colorations, snow textures, snow densities, um, uh, you know, um, avalanche of footage or, or collapsing um, s- uh, snowfield footage that looks realistic, um, the scale of the shots, all these things have to come into play and, and, and add up to a very very exciting climactic finish to um, you know a, a summer action film, and, and uh, this sequence went through so many permutations with budget for budget reasons and whatnot. But we had to come up with something that was just bigger and better than we did anything we'd ever seen. And, and so the idea of them in fact running along the top of the spaceship, and then realizing at one point to the audience um, that that the entire time that they were in a spaceship, and now they've they've run across and were almost eaten up by the the collapse which is the spaceship's mechanism for um, flying away Uh, it is a it is a a great moment for uh, the movie because it was so uh, incredibly difficult uh, assembling the sequence and getting all the elements to blend into what is a seamless um, uh, escape from uh, the spaceship and including you know the snow in every shot is is matched shot to shot because the densities change based on the lenses based on the um, you know the angles and where the lights hitting the snow um, the close-ups of David and Jillian uh, looking at each other uh, on the snow were shot months after we finished the principal photography in a very small six by six chunk of chipped ice with a blue background and and uh, you know uh, fake snow blowing through and, and uh, I'm operating the camera because I'm trying to find ways to compose and stay on the snow and, and uh, also pull off the idea that once again Jillian has not seen, Scully has not seen the spaceship, but it was too convenient to have her pass out and then wake up after the ship left so we just put her in a more of a semi-conscious state throughout and then of course, once Malta realizes that they're both safe and that the, the ship has passed and the danger's passed, he collapses. And it's Scully then who realizes what's just occurred and that Mulder has somehow gotten her out of the ice pod and, and and then this giant pullback revealing the crater uh, again is completely synthetic. That Mulder and Scully are just on a piece of ice and I pulled back uh, with the camera and then Matt Beck added you know 75 feet, 100 feet to the pullback and the entire pit. So it's a um, uh, it was a it was quite an achievement for everybody. It was uh, painstaking and and. Uh, um, ...you know, over and over and over, and,
0: but uh, in the end it seems to be one of the more popular sequences in the movie. The X-Files of... proceeds uh, on the idea that the government is not just withholding from the American public, uh, deceiving it... ...but that it has the ability to get inside your life and to invade it, ruin your life, uh, make your life miserable. In, in The X-Files we sort of play it out in, in an extreme way, the government as the sort of all-purpose villain. They have the ability to shape not just the truth, but to uh, to shape the, the future and uh, and your lives along with it. Antarctica is a long way from Dallas. The irony at the end of the movie,
1: which is, you know, after all that hard work and all the discovery and uncovering of facts and truths, that the conspiracy continues on. That yet, just like like every other um, embarrassment or or uh, mistake. It is basically lost in the paper shuffle. It's it's about you know um, the movement of, of paper and facts and burying it so that nobody will ever know anything happened and that and the conspiracy is in fact gonna be both covered up, destroyed, the burning of the cornfields and um, uh, the uh, transportation of the bee corn oil um, we know is now going to be uh, sent out and spread out and, and does that mean that we're going to be infecting um you know the c- citizens of the United States well uh, probably possibly um, and that uh in fact uh against I don't the, FBI the wishes of uh the FBI director here or the or the head of the investigation, investigation Blake Danner yeah. that um the only way any of these truths were ever found out was because of Mulder and Scully's uh, pursuit of the truth and Um, and that in fact uh, um, the best thing to do is to uh, reopen the X-Files which is the beginning of the 6th season After we show the cover up um, the burning of the cornfields and the, the scene back in the OPR with Blythe Danner. We have Mulder and Scully in a Washington, D.C. park discussing, you know, the cover-up. Uh, and this is the second version of the scene. The first version uh, actually had Mulder showing up and talking to Cigarette Smoking Man. And discussing, Mulder revealing to CSM what he knew based on the, the conversation in the limousine with well-manicured man about, when, you know, there would be a on a holiday or something, there would be an actual emergency and, and uh, so-and-so or such-and-such was going to happen. Well, uh, and then at the end of that scene, sequence, that the Scully shows up and there's a brief moment between the two of them, well... Right when we screened it the first time, we really only tested the movie once for a can. closed audience. The response was that that scene with we'll CSM was completely out of context we'll um, of the movie because Mulder and CSM were actually um, protagonists and antagonists, and do. never in the movie did they ever meet. And now they show I up in a park, and do. all of a sudden they're conversing too. as, their, yeah. as their, their old friends. Well, they are old friends in the series. They're all, I mean, acquaintances. Um, but not to the first time viewer and so we we decided that the best thing to do would be to reshoot and have CSM enter into that scene in a different way so we reshot it and we actually improved it because we made it more a scene about Mulder and Scully and their relationship and, and their quest and the strength of their bond and then at the end of that scene we had CSM up on a hill um, having watched them and realizing that, you know, he's going to have to stay on them because they are going to be, um, you know, a continued nemesis. Well, we even cut that out because it seems superfluous. So that was um, the, the alternate ending. And then we've got this footage of a helicopter over the sand dunes of, I think, Southern California, somewhere down near the border of Mexico. It's really wonderful footage shot by E.J. Forrester. Where apparently they shot a lot of the Star Wars, uh, the first Star Wars desert footage, and then um, here we are actually in Bakersfield, where we brought you know 80 feet of sand and and um, try to suggest that we are in fact in an incongruous, um, uh, having an incongruous uh, cornfield in the middle of a sand dune filled desert. Well. The sand dune uh, that they're that, that walking on, the, the, the sand that they're actually walking on, is about 80 feet long. And, you know, I wanted to have a little bit more of an expanse of sand so I could show really how incongruous the, the, the cornfield was. But uh, when CSM's feet come into frame, the sand is just out the left edge of frame. And then when I pan around and I have Armin Muellerstahl and, and uh, Bill Davis standing there talking, the sand is just out the right corner of the frame. Uh, and the rest is just Bakersfield and dirt, so uh but we did the best we could with the sand we had and and uh, it really was about the discovery of uh the note that the x files have been reopened anyway and then we we finished the movie on a on a quiet note, which is uh you know that there are many, many of these cornfields, and of course, the conspiracy is gonna continue on and on. This shot here. The only thing that's real about it is the corn, the domes, the sand dunes, the sky um, is all fake and as a matter of fact even a lot of the corn is replicated through the shot to make it look like it's a
0: much bigger field than it really is. We have this idea or we've always said, it's a pretense actually that what we do each week with the X-Files is we tell a little movie, we make a little movie. And while I do believe we do this, I learned in making a movie that uh, nothing is like making a movie. That a year of your life goes by very quickly. That uh, the big screen has demands that the small screen doesn't. It is both uh, a bigger screen and a um, a kind of minimalist process. Everything needs to be reduced. There cannot be any digression, no uh, dead ends, no pontification, that the audience gets very tired very quickly if they are not moving in a forward direction in a movie. So I learned why movies cost so much. Uh, I couldn't believe some of the price tags that were put on things, but when you are taking effects and you're putting them on film, it's it's a much more costly process in prospect so i learned uh, the hard way and i sort of was slapped in the face a little bit by the demands of that big picture up on the screen both of the filmmaker and of the storyteller and uh, while i think that we told a big screen story i think we told it well uh, i think that when we go to do the next x-files movie that we will all be much wiser more experienced and uh, savvy men and women who are, i know looking very forward to uh carrying this on from a tv series into a series of movies. Just want to win